Today we're starting uh, a new grace series, Grace Stories. And I think it's important that we take a moment to realize why we do this. Uh, We do it not so much so that you get to know each individual better or you get to see what other people's problems have been or how their life has gone. But we do it primarily so that our community is built, so that we realize we are one body in Christ. And when one part aches, the whole part aches. We do it so that you can become aware that you have to walk alongside of other people or that you can walk alongside of other people. And that is how we help one another. And that is one of the purposes of this grace story. The other purpose is simply to see how God works in our lives. With that as a background, I'd like to invite Rachel and Rebecca Jarvis to come up and share their grace story with us. On a Sunday in April, the year 1997, a baby girl was born to two West Indian immigrants at St. Vincent's Hospital on Staten Island, New York. On a Friday in October 1998, another baby girl was born to the same parents at the same hospital. And three years later, on a Wednesday in May 2001, their last daughter was born. For 16 years, the couple and their daughters lived, loved, and laughed together. They enjoyed each other's company to the fullest. Saturday nights were movie nights, Friday nights were kung fu movie nights, and Thursday nights were game nights. They liked taking road trips, never really with a destination in mind, but for the sake of their shared love of adventure. They were a godly family, and they always prayed together, in the mornings, the evenings, at every meal, in the car, over the phone. They loved the Lord, and they loved each other. Like the five fingers on a hand, this family was united, a team. It was them against the world until it wasn't. We're about to share with you their story, which just so happens to be our story. When my sisters and I were younger, there were a few metaphysical concepts we believed in. Cooties, skeleton dares, and pinky promises. Cooties were the contagious disease that dirty little boys and girls had, the ones who liked to pick their nose and flick it. You didn't want to sit next to them or touch them. You didn't even want to make eye contact with them because then you would risk the possibility of getting cooties through your vision. Cooties of the eye, if you will. Then there were skeleton dares, which were the mother of all dares. You had a dare, a double dare, a double dog dare, a triple dog dare, and then a skeleton dare. If someone skeleton dared you to eat a piece of grass, you had to do it. It was a part of the laws of dares. Then there are pinky promises. Some kids swore to God, some in their parents' lives, We, on the other hand, believed in the staying power of a pinky promise. When we made a pinky promise with someone, we meant it. It was a serious covenant. We were big on pinky promises. That is, until the summer of 2011, when someone close to us, someone we trusted with our lives, broke their quote-unquote pinky promise. I was 14 years old, Rebecca was 12, and Rena had just turned 10. Our paternal grandmother had died from stage 4 stomach cancer, and our dad had to go back home to Antigua and Barbuda to bury her. Our dad often traveled for work, so we were used to him being away from home sometimes. However, he always assured us that he would return, and we never had any reason to think otherwise. Except he didn't come back. The man who came back was not the same man who left, because the man who came back no longer wanted to be a part of our family. Now, he didn't say those exact words, but it was implied when he left again, this time for good. That summer, our world began to unravel. It was as if our entire lives had been fabricated since birth, and then Toto pulled the curtain aside 
And we saw Oz, the great and powerful, for who he really was. My sisters and I began to question reality. Were mother and daddy ever in love? Did daddy ever love us? What did we do to deserve this? And why would God tear a family apart? We had done everything right. We were the perfect Christians, or so we thought. And seemingly overnight, we went from living the hard-earned American dream to becoming another statistic. We had the family with the husband and wife, two and a half kids, big house with a yard enclosed by a picket fence and two cars. Circumstantially, we became the family we never thought we'd become. That of the single black mother raising her kids on her own because her husband walked out on her. We were given labels our parents had worked so hard to avoid, like fatherless, poor, and typical. In our closeted self-righteousness and idolatry, we were stripped of every luxury and comfort we had in this world. Every person, place, and thing that defined us, gone. The superstitious call it karma, the heathen bad luck, but Pastor Peter once called it grace. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is being made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses, knowing that from weakness comes strength, and Christ's power may rest on me. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 8 through 9. We each dealt with the dissipation of our family unit differently. We had two things in common. We were embarrassed and ashamed. The embarrassment of what happened became our weakness. We didn't know whether to tell people the truth or to put on an act and pretend like everything was okay, even though pretending like your life is perfect would do more harm than good. We stopped asking God to take our troubles away because we realized his power was being made perfect in our weakness. We've accepted the fact that God wouldn't have allowed our tribulations if we couldn't handle them. Therefore, we will boast all the more godly about our weaknesses, knowing that from weakness comes strength, and strength Christ's power. Our dad had promised to stay. He was never obliged to say it because it was an implied commitment. It comes with the lifelong job of parenthood, to be in your child's life. Yet for some reason, our dad broke his promise, and God let him. It's a harsh reality, but my sisters and I can only trust that it was to further God's kingdom. We were enraptured by our father. He was our friend, our hero, our savior, and in some ways, our God. As Christian children, we had replaced the almighty God with one we could see and hear and play with. So God reset us on the path to righteousness, a path that led to glorifying him, and not our dad, a path that led to trusting in him and not in man. Our dad chose to leave, and that's where the real hurt comes in. No one wants to hear that their pain is necessary, but as Christ followers, we must believe that it is. The heart is a muscle, and every now and then it must feel the burn. These last three years have changed us for the better. We've stopped merely existing as Edmund and Marlene's girls and started existing as Rachel, Rebecca, and Rena, children of the Most High God. We wake up every morning with grateful hearts, appreciative of the grace God has shown us by keeping us on the straight and narrow. We're thankful for our new lives in Christ as more self-aware and committed Christians. And we're also appreciative of the GRC Church family for being God's hands and feet by coming alongside our mom and helping us through our troubled times. However, my sisters and I are ultimately grateful for the promise that God made us back in May 2001, October 1998, and April 1997. The promise he personally made to everyone in this room and the promise he made to humanity to never leave us nor forsake us. It's a promise that comforts above all else, regardless of one's circumstances, because it can never be broken. 
We're still living out our grace story. It's incomplete. But we've realized you don't have to have a completed grace story to testify God's providence. We haven't made it to the proverbial mountaintop yet, and we've lost more than we care to share, but our God is greater. So for now, this is our grace story, or at least chapter one. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Our Father, we thank you for this testimony. We thank you for a willingness to speak out on a life that has had its difficulties. But we pray, Lord, that we would remember this is but the first chapter. And in essence, everyone who lives now and believes in you is still in their first chapter. We pray, Lord, that we would all continue to grow in you that we would be encouraged by others, by this story. More than that, Lord, we pray for a love of you and a love that endures as your love for us endures. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Words. Let's look to Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 to 37. Again, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. We've heard a story where words have hurt. Pardon me. We've heard a story where what was said was not what was lived. I'd like to look at this passage under three quick headings. It's a devotional. It'll be brief. But I want you to know the outline is watch what you say, mean what you say, and most important, know that God is aware of what you say. You'll see in your bulletin there's a little flyer that has some a brief discussion on oaths. Uh, You know, our friends, the Quakers, will not take oaths at all because... In this particular passage, it says, do not take oaths. The intent of the passage is not to ban oaths. The intent of the passage is to be careful when taking oaths. Oaths are for special occasions. Christ himself took an oath. In Matthew 6, 26, uh, Matthew 26, 62 to 63, we read, The high priest says to Christ, I charge you under oath. And Christ replies, yes. It is as you say. Christ need not swear by anything, for he himself was God. But he affirmed the oath by saying, It is as you say, and I it was charged under oath. Christ affirmed a statement and a demand. Oaths are permissible. I'll let it go with that. Please look at the flyer and the bulletin if you would like some more information on it. But also understand, this is a devotional. This entire passage could be Many, many weeks in preaching. 
in my mind, and I think it stands the test of time, the worse man is, the more oaths are needed. The better man is, the less oaths are needed. The more our character is upright, our words stand for what we say and for what we do. So I encourage you to watch what you say. The reason for that, in our culture again, culture teaches us to lie. In fact, it encourages us to lie. And that's dangerous. Where do we see this? Well, we can start with our political leadership. We've had presidents that said, I did not have sex with that woman. If you want your doctor, you can keep your doctor. And I could go down the list. It's not party broken down. It's everybody. Lawyers. To me, this is one of the most appalling. You stand before a judge, and you're the, the Boston Marathon bomber. There's a pile of evidence. And the judge looks at the defendant and goes, how do you plead? And how does the defendant plead? Have you ever heard one say, I am guilty? No. They plead not guilty. Words have no meaning. You know. We have to understand that all of this falsehood, all of this tendency to lie, is the creation of Satan. You know, in John 8, 44 and 45, we read, You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning. When he lies, he speaks his native language. When he lies, he speaks his native language. Satan's native language is to deceive. And is that not what all lies do? Do they not deceive? You know, in Acts, Paul writes to Anna, says to Ananias, How is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? Satan filled your heart. Do you know, do you realize that these words, the words we speak, when we lie, when we simply don't tell the truth, regardless of the reason, we are essentially ambassadors of Satan, the great deceiver. We lead people astray. And for what purpose do we generally do this if we lie? I would venture to guess that the one of the major reasons we lie is to protect ourselves, to enhance our own image, to make ourselves better than we are. You know, uh, we're not honest with ourselves. You know, one of the key things, one of the key things in overcoming any addiction is to be honest, to not kid yourself. One of the key things in overcoming a constant practice of sin is to admit it and to be honest with it and say I've sinned. You know, it's something we have to do. So we have to watch what we say because we can easily, easily become ambassadors of Satan. And I don't think that any person in this room would stand up and say, that's my goal in life. I want to be Satan's ambassador. You know, we have heard, we have heard two ladies speak this morning who essentially lived in a household that was filled with deception. They didn't know it. They didn't know it at all. The words that were spoken, 
the goals that were given were inconsistent with the life of the person living there. Deception. You know, people run to TV to watch a TV show called Deception. Oh, they got away with it. Oh, they did that. We have to be careful. We have to watch our words. We have to mean what we say. We cannot be deceivers. In James 3, there's a verse that says, How great a fire a little spark starts. You know, those are words. Yeses and noes. When the Bible says, let your no be no, you have to mean that. We generally say no, and it brings something to a conclusion. Kids ask their parents, can I go? No. Can I do? No. You know, and that should be the end of it. I think that, uh, you know, uh, when we watch parents discipline children, when we deal with it, we hear them say, don't do that. No, no, don't do that. No, no, no. I've said it three times now. No, no, no. If your child were running out in front of a bus, you would only say it once. You know. However, if it, your child's in a store and being disruptive, you'll say it three or four times. Let your no be no. You know, let your no be no. Husbands and wives, bosses and employees, customers and vendors, let your yes be yes and your no be no. No, I can't do that. I can live with that. Don't tell me I can, you can do it and then not do it. Let your no be no. Mean what you say. Don't let an intentionally wrong answer spark a great fire. The important part, not only does a no end things, no, you can't do it, that's pretty self-confident, self-evident, you know, right, no, it's, that's over, what's next? Or maybe you come back and say, well, if we did this, could we do it? And it might cause reconsideration. But generally, no brings an end. Yes, on the other hand. Let your yes be yes. See, if you don't mean that, if you don't mean you're letting your yes be yes, you have done a great disservice. Not only have you destroyed testimony, not only have you destroyed witness to God, you've destroyed trust, you've destroyed hope, you've destroyed reliability, because your credibility is gone. Yes, no. I'm God. I'm here to save you. Eh, maybe. Do you, uh, really? Is that the way God acts? He makes very strong statements. You know, he doesn't negotiate. And when we say yes, we commit. Are you going to be there that night? Yes. End of story. You know, if you say yes, if, okay. But if you commit to something, you are obligated. You don't need an oath. You know, you don't need that. Let your yes be yes. Now, the danger, the danger of not letting your words do what they're supposed to do, not maintaining your words, can be seen in many, many ways. Peter and I do a fair amount of counseling. And everybody comes for counseling, counseling when there is a crisis situation. Most people do not come when the problems are small. But the major problems come because the trust, the witness, the hope, and the reliability of the words that have been uttered for who knows how long before that have been destroyed. You have to understand 
that in a counseling case, if you come when it's for counseling, really you've got to deal with the big situation, and then you can only go back to the little situations. But if you folks, you know, and I'm not saying anybody has to come for counseling. Please don't. Um, uh, no. And, I, and for those that are coming for counseling, I'm not talking to anybody specifically. This is as good for me as it is for anybody else, you know. But if you've got some small problems with your credibility, if you've got some small problems with your reliability, if your word isn't good, deal with it. Start coming for help now. When you got married, to those of you who are married, you made an oath before God. And there's a strong, strong importance that you will work through problems because God is called as your witness. And you will work endlessly to solve those problems. Let your word be yes and your no be no when you say you're going to work with it. But you've taken an oath before God. We have to keep the, the important things important. You know, so it's safe to say we don't want to be ambassadors of Satan. That's not, you know, there's nobody here, again, raising their hand saying, oh, I'll take that job. The question is, do we want to be ambassadors for Christ? Are we going to set an example? Or, someday, are we going to say we'll be home at 5 o'clock and be away, never to return? Are we going to violate the yes, be yes? That's really what we're called on to do here. Words hurt. Words also help. Which side of that ledger do you want to be on? Keep your word. Now, it's easy to say. It's easy to say, okay. This is all on me. But it's not. Know that God is aware of what you say. Know that wholeheartedly. In Matthew 12, 36, it says, But I tell you, that day men will have to give account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. Every careless word they have spoken. Have you made empty commitments? Do you have commitments that are unmet, that can still be met, and should have been met a long time ago? Every careless word. I read that verse, and I want to weep. I can't tell you. You know, I'd like to think I've met every commitment I've made. I'd like to think I kept my word. But that every careless word one, that one, that careless part, that gets to me. You know, I, I, I've said my share of careless words. Uh, what have I done about it? Have I sought to repent, change my heart? Have I gone to the person I said the careless words against? Have I let my yes be yes and my no be no? Every careless word. And ultimately, as we draw this devotional to a close, ultimately, in uh, the end of 
Matthew 5. It's a very simple command. Very simple. Short, terse. Be perfect. As Christ is perfect. Let your words reflect that. Let your deeds reflect it. We don't want more grace stories with broken hearts. We want grace stories with victorious hearts and happy hearts because they can rely on people, because we bear testimony to Christ. We're about to take communion. We're about to utter the... the uh... Okay, help me out, Peter. What's the... Thank you very much. Oh, my goodness. I should write these things down more often. We're going to affirm something. I believe starts, you know, do you, do you say it or do you believe it? Let your yes be yes and your no, no. Let's close with prayer. Our Father, we need your help. We want to love you. We want to love one another. And we let these things called words affect it in a very negative way in many ways. And we let it affect our testimony. We let it affect, we let it affect everything that we do. And more than that, it affects the way others see us and our love of you. Let us realize and let our prayer be that when we open our mouths, we would reflect you. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.